back to the first episode. I suppose I shouldn't say welcome back, but welcome back to Sports and Society listeners and welcome to new listeners of our The State of Sports Media podcast. But this is Brad and I'm here with Kyle. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing well. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing what we think of how we digest and ingest all of this news uh, and all these outlets for getting our news and seeing if it really matters one way or the other how we go about getting it yeah so as a little background you know we've been doing the sports and society podcast on and off for several years at this point and we've throughout that time i think recognized that media plays an absolutely vital role in that conversation and so we're now more than ever going to dig into that and kind of lean into that particular side of things and think about how it's different now where it's been where it's going uh, and particularly looking at a number of the prominent ways that people digest sports these days. Yeah, and I think you kind of had the idea, right, to uh, uh, focus in on a particular outlet each week and maybe not read only that or pay attention to only that outlet, but accentuate it more than we normally would in our weekly cycle of digesting news and then kind of coming back together on the weekend and seeing how we felt about it, seeing what we gleaned and what was interesting and then trying to find out what's significant going forward, right? Yeah, so let's um, let's hold off on digging too deep into that for just a moment and share that we like to do a thing every week just because I think it's important and uh, uh, to always keep in mind what's actually happening. So we'll do this every week where we share a little bit, a little tidbit on something that's happening this that's happened this past week that captivated us and then we'll end with something that we're looking forward to for this next week so why don't you share with something from this past week Kyle? well i was driving home from work and a friend texted me and all he said was 3-0 in the text and so i immediately pulled over at the first bar that i saw uh and went in to watch the end of the liverpool uh barcelona match and got in there with like uh, maybe 20 minutes left in the game. Uh, so got to see the fourth goal. And then I missed the Tottenham game. But uh, in some ways that looked like even a, a more fascinating match, at least as far as the drama of the final, final moments of getting a goal to go through. Uh, and so there's so much to say about the Champions League matches uh insofar as or as if someone cares about Champions League in the first place. But um, there's all those conversations about having two English teams in the final, the role that England plays in European soccer and the role that European soccer plays in English soccer, and then kind of what the overall export is to the outside world. And so that is two English teams and that they both won in a dramatic fashion kind of created a lot of space for conversations about it and i don't know if i care about the actual conversations but i guess from a little bit of a removed perspective i found those games dramatic and entertaining but also that they like stirred up all these feelings that exist in the soccer world uh, hmm. i found interesting well i mean it's also interesting because you can add on top of that that the europa league is two english teams as well right in the final um which I think is, for me, it's a, it's a, you know, these games were incredibly captivating. The teams that I wanted to win did not win, which made it a little less enjoyable for me. Um, I will apologize for calling Liverpool dead in the water last week. Um, I really <laughs> hope they destroy Tottenham in the final. Um, uh, but uh, it's it's interesting, I think, from the perspective of these teams. English teams routinely do not have the best players in the world, and yet they seem to be able to compete as a team uh, with anybody, uh, which is interesting that they can't seem to draw that very top talent. Like, there's no indication that Neymar or Messi or even Ronaldo has any interest in coming back to or coming to the Premier League, um, and yet these teams win consistently right. on that scale. Um in that way, and then it just goes to show the way that soccer can tell stories with the best of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting that we call them English teams. And it, it's true that they play in England, but these teams across Europe all share 
the diversity. So it, it's interesting that um, the the league is what is represented, and, and that's an interesting to thing too for how often player personnel changes, not only in England but in Europe at large. Mm. Um, so I, I find that interesting too that it, it's the league that is representing itself, and it's one of those things like that we don't necessarily have allegiance to uh, until we play an international tournament. And then all of a sudden someone says like, oh, I value that. And the one that always comes up from my mind in that conversation is that uh, people in the South are so dedicated to the SEC Mm. uh, (laughs) that they'll pull for any SEC team in any game uh, that features an SEC team and a team outside the SEC. Um, I, I just kind of find that a little interesting thing, but um, what about you? So there are two things that really captivated me. One that made me really happy and one that I find quite scary. Um, the first one that made me quite happy is that uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, our favorite dude in the world, mm. um, heavy sarcasm there, um, yeah. uh, has a celebrity or a charity hockey game every year. Uh, and as usual in his game this past week, he scored eight goals, um, most of which were the softest goals you would ever see. Um, <laughs> but then he had this absolutely amazing moment where he was skating around the rink, waving at the fans, which, mind you, there were not that many fans in the arena. But all of a sudden, he tries to skate over the red carpet that he doesn't see coming up and totally bites it and face plants. Um, and it is <laughs> phenomenally amazing to see that man have that happen to him. Man, is there anyone in the world that Trump more wants to be? <laughs> no. Oh, it's amazing. It is amazing. Um, but then the second story is about um, Arsenal being in the Europa League final. And one of the Arsenal players is the captain of the Armenian national team, a gentleman named Henrik Mkhitaryan. Um, and the final for the Europa League is in Baku, Azerbaijan, which I was not aware had uh, a history from being Bluntly honest, I didn't think Armenia was that close to Azerbaijan, but apparently they are. Um, and they had a war in the 90s, and apparently Azerbaijanis absolutely despise, and in the schools tend to teach absolute hatred of Albanians. Um, and so to the point where uh, Mkhitaryan may not be able to play in this game for fear of his life, Um the kind of most famous story about the hatred between the two is that there was uh, a UN or NATO, I forget which one, probably UN um, peace conference in Hungary, and there were members of the military for both uh, Albania and Azerbaijan there, and an Albani- or Azerbaijani uh, military member uh, cut off and axed uh, the one of the Albanian military officials' heads in the middle of the night. Uh, served eight years in prison for that, uh, as you would expect in Hungary, but then was sent back to Azerbaijan due to some uh, diplomatic wranglings and was immediately freed and given a house and a promotion when he was sent back to Azerbaijan and is now held up as a national icon of how to be a patriot in that country. Um, and some really amazing things about how we need to kill Albanians wherever they are has been said. And to the point where I do not doubt that Mkhitaryan, uh, has very legitimate reasons for feeling he may be killed even on the pitch, uh, in the game that will be coming up. That's another level of intensity to say the least. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's another level. What's the most current developments on it is... Is he saying much about it, or is it people talking about him? It now looks like he's saying, um, we're, I'm going to go, uh, but Arsenal and he have kind of said that they're not going to go until they get official word from UEFA that they will have extra security there for him, and UEFA has not been very responsive to that request. 
unsurprisingly, given that they've chosen to host the, uh, in this place for money and all that jazz. Right. Um, but it's just, uh, it now looks like he's going to go, but uh, there will certainly be an edge to proceedings at this point. Yeah. So. It makes me think of uh, one of my all-time favorite episodes. I shouldn't say favorite. One of the most fascinating and interesting and deep uh, episodes of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain was his trip to Albania uh, and how he covered the horrors of war uh, as they exist there and how groups of people recover, but also still how inept we seem at the international scale to deal with the consequences um well it's fascinating to me because it comes on the heels of um occasionally when i'm wandering around the youtube universe i will stumble upon the joe rogan podcast and mm -hmm. uh, he often says things and has guests on that say inflammatory things and um one of the things that was he was mentioning on this clip that came up on my feed was that uh he and one of his other guests were noting that um he doesn't think wars over land are going to be a thing anymore. And this just popped up immediately thereafter to prove that that's an incredibly sheltered perspective. And these things are still happening all over the world. And we just don't know how to comprehend or understand them really. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, but just remember, Putin fell on his face, and there's video clips of it on Twitter that everyone should go look and see and share and uh, send to Trump so that he can see that. And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's talk about this new thing we're going to be doing here. Um, so, again, we're launching this the State of Sports Media podcast, and... Um, so kind of as we've laid out, as Kyle mentioned earlier, for each week before the podcast, we'll be kind of emphasizing one particular thing. And there's certainly ones among these that are ones that are already in our regular rotation, but I think we'll be looking at them a little more critically and a little more deeply. But there are certainly ones that we've listed out that I don't regularly look at. You know, we've got um, Barstool, which I think you and I are both, uh, both intrigued and maybe dreading a little bit, and... Um, I'm intrigued to look at it from the lens of the Atlantic, which, or not the Atlantic, but the Athletic, which I have been very intrigued by the few articles that I've read, but have not dug in in depth to that. And the Bleacher Report is fascinating to me from the sense that they now have the broadcasting rights to some big uh, things. So, um, what are you thinking at this point as we dig into this? Yeah, I think what is significant right at the start is that what Warren's doing this is a massive change that has happened and that the change seemingly is culminating quickly but has probably been in the works for quite some time is significant to me. And so I think about it in terms of you know, 50 or 60 years ago, uh, you read your local news beat. Uh, if you cared about sports, uh, and there would probably be some uh, national sports coverage, but I can't imagine that it would have been so connected to identity of a group as much as it was probably just geography related mm -hmm. more than anything else. And so that transition from a geography, local sort of understanding of how the sports sport sports work in society to what we have today, which is, um, like anything else, is as varied as the internet itself. Uh, and so that transition, I think, is interesting. And I guess one of my first points of entry is to kind of explore that change and explore how that change can be observed and talked about uh, through looking more in-depthly at like what a certain outlet is now and kind of seeing like how they have carved out a niche in the market and what it is that they are doing that is setting them apart. And I guess one thing I can like already predict or know to some extent, but will be interesting to look at more closely is you mentioned The Athletic, that they're a pay-for site. Uh, so you subscribe to the site for three or four bucks a month or something like that. Uh, 
and how they do it without any ad revenue, which there are other sites that are on the complete opposite side of that, that are just lambast you with ads when you go to their sites, and that's how they do it. Uh, and so that there's uh, a, a seeming divide, and that is just kind of like one example that uh, there's all these broader forces that are dictating how we go about getting our news sources. And so I think that's like my main entry point, is kind of seeing that change uh, as it can be observed in what exists now, and then how each of these uh, sources is kind of carving out a niche in the market. Yeah, there's several aspects of that for me too. The you know the niche part is really interesting. Both you know for this context, we're probably going to lean more into the niche of the particular demographics of the audience, and not lean in necessarily to the niche aspect of the sports, because I think that's the other side of it is that we do see that each sport has is starting to see its own niche platforms launched for it, which is an interesting dilemma and, and dynamic. And I think the other thing that I'm kind of intrigued to follow is something that I've heard a little bit about in the broader media sphere, but not dug into particularly much because it's not still not necessarily how I view news. I do think it's kind of how you view these things uh, to a greater extent than I am, but there's a big move in the broader magazine um, news, whatever it is, world to uh, for people to read those people that they know and admire. And so the example mm-hmm. for me is, you know, mostly anything Zach Lowe writes, I'm going to be all about. You know, there there's one or two other folks, but I still mainly go by sources, whereas I think we're starting to move away from that to people that follow writers over sources, which is an interesting interesting thing as well. Yeah, and that makes me think how it could be interesting to look back, and in some ways, that's almost a, a throwback uh, in some ways, I think, in that in the early years of sports reporting, I think that was pretty common hmm. in that like each city had an a writer and there was one writer that kind of identified the city's sports landscape or at least was like the most seminal or salient voice in that city. Um and so in some ways that that would be interesting to kind of think about and and unpack a little bit. It it leads me to thinking that each of these sources is exploiting something uh, in order to have a space in the market. Mm. And so if we kind of like accept that as a premise uh, or a valid assumption, then it becomes interesting to look at like, okay, what are they exploiting? And so in some ways you could say there are probably sources out there that are exploiting an individual (laughs) that has a certain following. Um, and, And also too, I guess that's, if we accept that they are exploiting something, then that makes the conversation really interesting between the Guardian and Barstool mm-hmm. of uh, what, where is their market and how are they reaching it and to what extent is their demographic dictating what they publish um, would be kind of an interesting question to look at. It also leads me to the question of like, why? Why, why do you exist? What, do you, what are you doing here? Uh, and to what extent are you about uh, making money in the first place and or to what extent are you about uh, believing in a product for some sort of like public good uh, which would be an interesting thing to apply through a sports lens of like mm-hmm. if there's such thing as um, creating a public good through your sports coverage uh, and I, I can probably already predict where we're going to fall out on that conversation <laughs> yeah well, it's interesting to me, too, that there's some very basic things that we should talk about here. And I think that, you know, part of this is that we'll want to share at some point today kind of what our normal repertoire of reading and uh, accomplishing the news is. But I think that, you know, you mentioned newspapers that, you know, we all grew up reading the local newspaper. And I remember box scores, following box scores, but there was no commentary attached to that stuff growing up. Um, and when you would watch, you know, the television coverage was all like live sports stuff. I don't, you know, I didn't have access to ESPN regularly growing up. And so I didn't see sports commentary until I went to college. That was a new, new experience. And so, um, in some ways I'm intrigued to know, you know, what, 
how the internet and the easy access to these things has expanded dramatically what is out there, but also changed the content. So, I mean, we're already seeing that the stuff that was often on there, you know, ESPN, um, you know, we don't know right now, uh, but there's a presumption that a large percentage of their actual um, just pieces based on what happened in an event. So, you know, their recaps are being driven by AI. Mm-hmm. Um and being written by a computer as opposed to a person. Um, and so I'm intrigued to know kind of a little bit more about that space and how just the change in the form and the fact that we're not sports media used to be live sports and now it's something totally different, uh, how that has changed and impact how we view sports as a whole. Yeah. And again, it makes me think about how those sports writers, uh, before there was digital media and these massive sports conglomerates like ESPN, their job was to recap and provide color, but it was all posthumous, right? It was like uh, it, it, you you relied on them to learn what it felt like in the stadium that day uh, as opposed to going to ESPN's uh, homepage now and there's 87 videos that you're supposed to watch. Uh, that all come with a 15 or 30 second ad before you can see what happened in the stadium that day. Uh, and that, that you say in box scores reminded me of a time when we were really young. Uh, I'm thinking I was probably like 10. And I remember your dad telling my mom that you read box scores and that you would do it for like hours. <laughs> And I remember being like, whoa, I never thought to do that uh, in that moment. Like, was a, a quite a significant moment. I think that's when I first started paying attention to box scores is when we were like 10 years old, but I didn't know that was a thing you, you could do. Um, and, you know, I didn't think about it until this very moment. The reality is that, you know, baseball cards were probably the biggest form outside of the newspaper of sports media that I had. Mm-hmm. growing up and so i used to spend hours looking at these batting averages and shooting percentages on these baseball cards and basketball cards that really had no context but you felt like you could know these players from those numbers which is interesting because that's how you know the analytics revolution is doing it but there's so much more data available in some ways about these things whether it's quantitative or qualitative it's just the the amount of context has just absolutely exploded. That's fascinating. And I would like to hear more about maybe a, just like a, a brief version of kind of how, what that transition in college was like uh, and what your outlets were when you, when you transitioned out, because the thought of looking at baseball cards, like of I have that in common too, right? Of like, I just was obsessed with baseball cards. Um, I mean, the, the having the Beckett and your baseball mm-hmm. cards out was like thrilling, <laughs> right? Like I could knock out like seven hours on a Saturday doing that. Um, it, it also made me think of um, how I really connected with my teams growing up was going to games and then also kind of the pre-one-and-done era, the pre-massive free agency era. And so the two that are most uh, in the forefront for me is the Cincinnati Reds and UK basketball. And so UK basketball, those players were there for four years. And then with the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, a lot of those players were there for eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years. Uh, And so how well I got to know them through that. But even still that pales in comparison to knowing what they're thinking, which I could potentially get from Twitter now or Instagram. Uh, And so how different that relationship is between how we report on the individuals that are part of it. And the last piece of that is thinking of how thrilling it was to stay after a UK game and they would do the post-game radio show live in Rupp Arena Hmm. uh, and how like, that was just like as good as it gets. Uh, and it makes me think that that's almost like a version of Twitter or Instagram of kind of like being there in the moment right after the game um, and seeing and hearing what the players and the coaches were thinking. 
You know, that reminds me of um, going to a UVA game when we beat Duke when they were number two or three in the country and in the mid-90s in the old UVA building. And um, just fascinating to think, you know, we stayed after the game because you could see where the Duke players would come out to get on the bus to go back to where either the plane or I don't know whether they were taking a plane or bus back. But we heckled them as they were getting in, and then <laughs> Dickie V came out and rolled down his window and was like, "What yeah. happened to the Dukies?" And it, it was like, it, it's you know, in the moment, it was just like intoxicating, and mm-hmm. it's amazing to think that that's kind of what we have all the time now. That that level of access is available to us, um, yep. maybe not in person, but in some form or fashion, all the time. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking of like, again, maybe we're getting too nostalgic here, but uh, going to a Reds game and sitting on the third base line, like 30 yards from Chris Sabo, was like, I can't believe I'm looking at someone whose baseball card I've stared at and analyzed. Like, I know his stats for the last eight seasons. Uh, and then being 30 yards away. But now if I were to like have that kind of love or admiration for an athlete, I can see what the inside of their house looks like. Um, I can see what they're eating for dinner. <laughs> and I know what they think about the political situation or how they feel about Black Lives Matter and all these things that was just I- impossible to know even in our early childhood. So I think maybe to kind of bring it back a little bit, that's kind of the impetus or what is interesting for us is that we've experienced this crossover uh, into such a, a, a different world than what existed when we were kids. Well, and it's, I think it's also interesting because it's accelerating. I think you can, mm-hmm. you can clearly yep. say, I mean, I think we're not close to the end of what the revolution in this is going to be. I think it's going to continue morphing and changing but i think it's also interesting to kind of see if we can trace some of it back mm-hmm. um and so like is there a point we can look at you know espn leaning in f- to the commentary and so when did you know i don't know but when did they start doing around the horn and uh you know pti and these shows that were strictly take based versus when was it less about the actual facts of what was going on and then how does that lead into the bigger conversations that these other platforms are feeding into, which is really only take-based. I mean, in some ways, we know that when we're going to Bleacher Report and even the Atlantic or the Athletic, that we're not going there for the actual scores, that most people are still going to go to ESPN for the actual scores, but you're going to get something else from them. And that's something that was maybe cultivated by ESPN and now they've lost control of a bit. And so that is is one of my central questions, and I guess in some ways it's kind of a feeling. And so I will be interested to see what we can kind of um, unpack or maybe even crystallize the relationship between all of these media outlets that exist, and not just ESPN, but these larger institutions that are capable of paying what is necessary to broadcast and how there still is a massive divide between broadcasters and pundits uh, and those that talk about sports. And so what is the relationship between Deadspin or um, The Athletic or some even smaller outlets and NBC and CBS and Fox mm-hmm. and ESPN? And so ESPN you know, histo- was right there uh, on the precipice and even in some ways created the precipice in saying that we're going to do the journalism and we're going to do the broadcasting. And it's, it'll be interesting, especially like you said, to look at Bleacher Report and how they're trying to get into that game. Or not trying, they're in the game now. Uh, something that started what the first time I went to that website years ago, it looked like a, a high school kid's blog. Uh, and, and now they're broadcasting and generating hundreds of millions of dollars of ad content. Hmm. And having terrible commentary, mind you. Yeah, it's not great. Uh, I'm pulling for them. I don't even know why I'm pulling for them, but I'm like rooting for them while I'm watching, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Stu Holden and Steve Nash, not working, guys. It's not working. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 
I'm blaming Stu Holden. He talks too much. <laughs> um, well, I'm also intrigued to know how social stuff is interacting with this. You know, I'm intrigued by my own self and not, I don't know exactly why I'm this way, but I've started getting a fair amount from Twitter these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, we've got Reddit down here. I'm really interested to know how viewing sports through that social lens is going to change how I look at it on some level, because I think it's certainly, I can tell already that I'm intrigued to know how people react to things. Like last night after, thank goodness, the Rockets lost. Amazing. So thankful. <laughs> I'm so tired of Chris Paul being on TV. Um, but uh, I was like searching. I went on Twitter immediately afterwards because I wanted to see what people were saying about it, which is an interesting like added level of, you know, I don't really care what Stephen A. Smith has to say about it, but I'm intrigued to know, like, is there someone that has a funny take on it or someone that has a particularly insightful take that's not someone that I go to often for those things? And that's, there's an interesting level of the social aspect that is available to us now in that way that kind of anybody, and the way that in many ways we are now sports media, that we recognize the irony in that and, uh, you know, people... uh, may find something out of nowhere that we have to say that's interesting in the same way that we may find some random person that resonates with us on Twitter or Instagram or wherever. Right. Yeah. It's a quick way to figure out what matters. I think, uh, at at least as far as, uh, the, (coughs) those who are using the outlet or using Twitter, whatever it might be, uh, to quickly hone in on what it was in something of say something was on TV for two hours. Like what were the three moments in those two hours that really generated the most conversation kind of being able to hone in on that. And I've done that before. I, it, I don't do it very often, but yeah, I usually do it when something kind of weird happens during a sporting event, I'll go to Twitter and search the sporting event. To, and it, sure enough, there's like 800 million people that all were like, did you see that? Yeah. Yeah. I saw that. Just making sure someone saw that. Uh, and but you, I mean, you have to be careful as well because you soon wind up in the, you know, Chris Paul's the dirtiest player ever, or what everything that Chris Paul is doing, Draymond Green has done worse, and you know mm-hmm. you wind up down this rabbit hole and wormhole very quickly. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you've been down that rabbit hole. I've been down that rabbit hole. <laughs> um, I think too. I'll be interested to um, see how betting plays a role in all of this uh so with the legalization of betting uh from anything i've read about it and i've only just started understanding it and giving it time uh to understand what is happening and what is going to happen but it seems like everyone that has authority in the sports betting and sports media world are agreeing that it's going to change everything again um in that we're going to have mainstream shows that are entirely dedicated to betting that when we're watching NCAA basketball, there's going to be lines on the bottom and they're going to cut away for five minutes to give a betting update. Hmm. Uh, and so it, it's going to be ubiquitous here very quickly. And not only that, I, I will be interested to see how the, the money plays out because it also seemingly is going to take what in many ways was on the way out and that being these TV coverage and TV journalism uh, is only going to get like um, kind of revamped and re-energized by the uh, interest of people that are betting on sports because they're so obsessed with watching uh, as, a par- uh, as opposed to what's been happening currently. Well, it makes me think about the folks that are already leaning into it and the examples there. You know, I think about you know, Bill Simmons has been on that betting train for a while and has been public about it. But even more than that, I think I'm intrigued. You know, I don't know about you, but Scott Van Pelt is clearly the sports interactor that I care the most about. Um, mm-hmm. And he has leaned into it forever, you know, having segments on bad beats. And, yeah. um, you know, that's interesting to see them, and particularly ESPN, who's such a powerful player kind of lean into that as well even though they're clearly uncomfortable and only have it on his show that there's um you know he's powerful enough to push that agenda for the whole team 
in that way. Right. Yeah. It's confident pelt would be even an interesting thing of, to like add to the list of like, what if we only like watch Scott Van Pelt for a week? It was fascinating. Last night I, I um, stayed up for a little while to watch Scott Van Pelt talk about the Warriors Rockets series. And he mm-hmm. was talking to Stephen A. Smith and he like kind of got into it more than Stephen A. Smith was. And Stephen A. Smith called him out on it. And it was this amazing moment of like, why is Scott Van Pelt? Like this guy, I think a very mild manner, it's so jazzed about Steph Curry proving <laughs> doubters wrong, and he, like, he loves Steph Curry. Well, it was like then Stephen A. Smith is like, "You're clearly a little emotional about this," and I'm like, "If Stephen A. Smith is calling you out, what is going on, man?" That's pretty good. Yeah. Um, well, right now, where do you go? Where are your places that you get news from right now? Uh, I start with ESPN probably every day. Um, uh, ESPN, Guardian, occasional Sports Illustrated, occasional local, uh, Deadspin, not much Bleacher Report, report to be honest, um, The Ringer, and that, and I, I, I'll check uh, like the major nationwide news outlets. So like New York Times, Washington Post, uh, even NPR. Um, so I'll, I'll check to see what they're saying. And then uh, I've been using Twitter recently. I, um, I always see what Dave Zirin thinks uh, about the week from the nation. Uh, that's probably about it right now, to be honest. Okay. Yeah. What about you? So ESPN, first and foremost, as much as I've tried to avoid it, it's still clearly the easiest place to go to find things. Um, SI occasionally, probably three or four days a week, I'll go on there to see what's going on. Um, I do Guardian Sports. You know, the Guardian's where I go for my broader news, and so I, I always check the sports feed when I'm there. Um, and then... Uh, I do a lot of ringer NBA stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. and I do a lot of Twitter stuff that there's certain, but it's very focused stuff, which I think is interesting that I do. Um, I follow certain arenas. So like, there's not necessarily, uh, there's probably like 20 guys in college basketball that I'm intrigued to know what they think about things, Mm -hmm. but I'm intrigued more than anything to find out how they're reacting to other folks in that in that space. Um, and those are really the main ones right now. I don't really go to many of these other places. Um, and I'm intrigued. The ringer is an interesting one we didn't have on our list, but I kind of feel like we need to add it, add it on there. There's such a different perspective they have on things. Yeah. And I think the ringer is important maybe, and this can be kind of a way to kind of draw some conclusions here and wrap up to some extent. But, uh, I would agree with many others. I'm not the first to say this, that it was ESPN page two that Mm. was the progenitor of all of this that really got it going, I think. And uh, I I remember reading an article. I think it was a Deadspin article from like seven or eight, nine years ago that was commenting on the death of page two and so I think page two went away in like 11, 12, maybe 2011, 2012. And it was like, don't lament the death of page two uh, because it's everything now. Hmm. And uh, obviously page two is where Bill Simmons got his start as the sports guy and kind of cultivated one of those followings that you were talking about uh, a little bit earlier. And then it was from page two, we got Grantland, and then from Grantland, we have The Ringer. Uh, and so in many ways, Bill Simmons, the individual, has to be part of the conversation, even if we do that reluctantly. Um, but the, I, ring, the Ringer, Grantland, page two kind of storyline, I think, is, is really important. Well, I think it's also, I think there's an interesting secondary side to that, that... Um, he and I think others, I think Deadspin is somewhere in this category as well, that they have seen the overlap between pop culture and sports and so really made 
the most of that and so mm -hmm. incorporated those kind of things that we usually see in pop culture or just straight up include things about pop culture in the sports coverage on the same page that you would find that stuff is a really interesting dynamic and a way to view that that i think mm -hmm. is only going to grow with time if i had to guess i think that's a that's a growing market segment yeah and i it makes me think of those outlets that I, I still feel like the ringer has like pop culture section and sports section uh, and politics section. Whereas I, I, I'm thinking of uh, the undefeated and mm. even the players tribune in some ways that they don't even bother to make the designation. There's like, this is just all one thing. Mm. Uh, and so that, that level of incorporating pop culture and sports and politics and social issues all into just it's all just sitting here we only have one tab <laughs> kind of thing whereas mm -hmm. the ringer still still sparses it out i think oh very good are there things that you're looking forward to or nervous about um yeah i hate barstool i don't want to <laughs> but i think it's important maybe i guess i feel similarly about reddit um I'm not thrilled about those two things, but I'm also curious. Like, what's going on? Why is why is this such a thing? So I I, I think I'm looking at that, and in that way, I think what is a a key concept here or a key issue for me that is of interest is toxic masculinity as it exists in all these outlets. And I, I'm interested to see if I can find anything or if there's anything in how these outlets approach the NFL, MMA, and hyper-masculinity in, in, in certain ways and kind of see if there's anything interesting or significant in that conversation. But I agree. And I, you know, I, I'm intrigued to know kind of how our perspective on um, the fandom will change over the course of this. And, the, you know, I think we have perspectives on what fandom looks like and so it's in, it was intriguing to me to read this um you know this mctarian thing i was reading a fair amount about it on a reddit post on the soccer page and I'm, i shouldn't have been surprised but i was surprised by how seriously the comments took the issues whereas i expect reddit to immediately go to a place of sarcasm and memes and yet that was not where they immediately went to which i found interesting and refreshing and i'm wondering how much of that is audience you know my immediate ex expectation is to doubt the audience on these things and yet maybe mm -hmm. i shouldn't be so down on those things and i'd be intrigued to know um like i kind of have the same opinion that you do about barstool mm -hmm. and yet i've never spent much time on there and so i wouldn't be surprised in some ways if i find that their actual content is better than I expect, and it's in some ways the reactions around it and some of the bravado and those kind of things that lead to some of the more negative feelings about it and how do they go about cultivating that where it's not necessarily the content as much as it is the atmosphere and the and the the way that they develop and set themselves up. Mm -hmm. So this has me having an urge, I think, to kind of share why I think this is a valuable thing to look into. And I think it comes with just a real personal interest for me as far as the like toxic masculinity is concerned. And I think I can make my point by talking about a podcast I recently listened to where Mark Marin interviewed Brian Callen. And Brian Callen is, uh, he has a massive podcast, but he's also kind of known as a sports guy. But it's, he uh, competes in and plays and covers um, mixed martial arts and uh, other kind of niche sports. Uh, he's not into mainstream basketball, football, baseball. Uh, and he tells a story about how he was recently on a flight and his flight was in between, his seat was in between two bros that were each reading Sports Illustrated. And he asked uh, the flight attendant if he could change seats because he didn't want to sit in between two bros and talk about and pretend like he knows about football, baseball, and basketball. Hmm. And I found that 
in, intriguing and interesting that here's Brian Callen who covers MMA talking about how he doesn't want to engage in bro culture, toxic masculinity. So that was interesting <laughs> in and of itself. I'm like, well, that's kind of problematic in a little several ways. But at any rate, for me, I think in in many ways I was taught to be by ESPN and SportsCenter and the way they covered culture and presented culture to me and where they the way in which I was taught how to be a man even. Uh, and so I think that gives a lot of significance to what we're doing and it brings to mind even more so the betting piece of like, okay, what will it look like for a 10-year-old that is compelled by sports and can't fully com- explain why they are so compelled by it to be inundated with betting lines and to be uh, given a dose of culture and sports news through these avenues that are exploiting something and there's a byproduct to it and sometimes it's not good in that i was taught toxic masculinity you know that was the world i was taught and there weren't there wasn't anyone around me kind of saying like it doesn't have to be like this like there's other options here well yeah and I, so i think that that's the big question and it's kind of the question we dig in with all of this is you know how much of this is a reflection of society and how much of it is influencing society. And I think it's a a big proponent. There's a big part of both. And I think it's intriguing. And I think one of the things that we'll dig into with this in general, one of the things we'll kind of try and wrap our heads around as we get to the end is whether or not we think this is a good thing or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there's an argument in some ways that this part departmentalization means that people that, you know, don't care for the, that, that, toxic masculinity and want to overcome those problems that we've had for so long have avenues where they can still enjoy sports and do so Mm -hmm. Um, and yet at the same time we've seen equal and opposite reaction on the other side where people that are leaning into those negative trends and is that worse than it was before or is it you know is making that a niche uh, a positive thing uh you know we've seen espn kind of uh lean away from that attitude recently how much of that is because there's more competition and more understanding of it Uh, i'm intrigued to kind of think about those questions and think about how the bigger ones versus the smaller ones have an influence that that leads to to many things and the fact that barstool may be a fairly small market and yet i think they have an outsized influence in many ways yeah i like that a lot that's how that's that's really cool to think about. It makes me think about like countercultures and authority and accountability and how kind of all those three things work together in this more disparate media landscape as it, as it exists now. When I think about, you know, you mentioned earlier that we have, we had these very similar upbringings of how we understood sports growing up. You know, we read the newspaper, we collected cards, we went to the games um, you know, and for me, there was like, even this moment of like, I always wanted to buy sporting news, but I could never afford it. And so right. like, it was just like out there is like, Oh, I wish I could do that. Yeah. Um, but even like, even down to Beckett, we all had our Beckett's and that was what we were using to judge our cards. And, and yet the sports experience nowadays is not, is so disparate that you could be paying the same amount of attention to the same sport and yet have a, a wildly different experience of what that looks like. Yep. Yeah. Gosh, it, it, it's so fascinating to think about the contrast between what Dave Zirin represents as a socialist covering sports versus, uh, you know, remember when sports center was only Saturday morning from nine, eight to 12 and they just played the same show four times on repeat. Mm-hmm. And I would just I would watch four hours of Sports Center every Saturday morning from eight to twelve. I watched the same episode four times, and how that was just like blasting into my brain versus uh, what Dave Zirin represents now. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's also important for us to recognize that there are parts that are still the same. And so I think about mm-hmm. Jackie McMullen's, um, and I forget her co-author, but their book on basketball, a love story. Uh, is in some ways representative of the fact that there's still this very strong book culture out there that is still the same as it kind of has been in terms of these long, really long-form stories about what's going on and digging into things. And it's worth noting that 
that kind of journalism is still out there and still important in that space. It will be interesting, too, to draw those lines of continuity through this disparate landscape that we're kind of unraveling uh, in these next episodes of, like, where are the norms, I think mm-hmm. is an important question. What What is something that everyone is agreeing on, and, and why are they all agreeing on it mm-hmm. will, will be interesting. Well, But I'm good there if you are. Yeah, well, what... Uh... Before we leave, what are you going to pay attention to this coming week? Uh, I will, as mentioned last week, so um, Formula One, I want to see Mercedes win every week just because (laughs) I think it'll be absurd. But I also will probably definitely be paying attention to the PGA this week. So they've moved it up in the schedule, which I, if I cared about the health of the PGA Tour, which I, I don't think I do. <laughs> it probably was a good move for them uh, making uh, the, the tournament earlier in the year. It did lose a lot of its luster by being so late and coinciding with the FedEx Cup playoffs. But uh, it, a lot of the storylines are pretty compelling. Uh, probably first and foremost is Tiger Woods. Um, so just pointing out that those seminal characters and seminal stories still get my attention to some extent and it's not that like i'm like you know standing up and cheering for tiger woods but as much as i am just interested in the sports and society side of it of uh he's he's an important figure so i'll be paying attention to that i think but you got some cycling on the calendar oh yeah giro d'italia starts this week which will be exciting and you know, this we really don't know what to expect, and it'll be a fun, fun week of racing around Italy, which is always beautiful to watch and and see what's going to happen there. But I do have to say also that um, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but for whatever reason, I'm still on the disc golf thing, and so uh, there's a big tournament going on right now that I'm intrigued to see what's going to happen with. Which I have no idea how long that's going to last. I can't help but think it's not going to be a long-term thing, but yeah. uh, at the moment, very interested in it. So <laughs> I like it. But uh, all right, man. Well, I think um, I think we're going to do ESPN next week, so we'll come back and we'll share some of our thoughts as we dig into what ESPN means in its current form, where it's been, and kind of where it may be going and what it represents for us. But thanks, Kyle. Thanks, man. That was fun. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, please give us a rating, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this. And we look forward to seeing you every week and digging into some of this stuff together.